Signing on to the CP Show. Hope everyone is having a fantastic Saturday night. Uh, it's been a busy week out here in the political world, and we do have a lot to talk about. We have a great show for you guys tonight. Tonight's show, we're going to be really specializing. We're going to be talking all about school districts and school boards. We have a guest tonight, Dr. James Miller, who will be leading us through the complicated bureaucracies of local school board elections. So, anyway, First, as always, is our introductions. I am your host, Diego. I have with me my wonderful co-host, Kathleen Gomez. How are you doing, Kathleen, tonight? Very well. Thank you, Diego. Glad to hear. Glad to hear. <laughs> so, um, the big thing, as always, we like to kind of talk about what the CP show is all about. We are one facet of a movement called the Know Your Vote Initiative. Um, we have tons of people talking about how everyone needs to vote. It is your civic right um, duty as a de- as a member of our democracy. But not only is it your duty to go to vote, you should know your vote. So we want a more educated populace. And one way we want to do that is through our website, Candidates Platform. It's a one-stop shop place for you to find all the information out you need about anyone who's running for both in your area that you can vote for or anywhere across the country. Um, we would basically it's basically a social media hub specifically for politics and elections. Um, you can connect everything you need to know from any kind of politician. And as well as if you are interested in running, we would be the place for you to get out uh, your message and to reach your constituents and possible voters. The Know Your Vote initiative is all about informing the voters for a more educated populace. Um, but as we as said, today is a very specific show. We're going to be talking about a very, very important uh, facet and issue with kind of the local elections, and that is your school boards and your school districts. Um, they have massive budgets, and uh, they have a lot of influence on your life, especially if you have children. Um, one of our guests, I'm going to have uh, Kath- Kathleen, I'm going to have you introduce. Uh, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be really fascinating. Thank you very much, and I just want to mention to the audience that if you have any questions, please call toll-free at 888-627-6008 or direct 323-744-4831. Again, 888-627-6008 or 323-744-4831. Our guest tonight is Dr. James Miller. He is a public education advocate, activist, independent scholar, African-American historian, writer, and documentary filmmaker. Several years ago, he created his own internet radio show on the BBS radio called The War Report on Public Education, 
which explored the total takeover of our education system by corporate interest. Tonight's topic, as we said, is school boards in America, the importance of running for your local school board, the massive budgets they receive every year, and the power and influence they have on your child's life. Dr. Miller has experience and research to share regarding school board accountability and the future of education in this country. From the bus company, the teachers hired and fired, to our current pandemic issues, your local school boards make decisions on every aspect of your school children's life. Well, with that said, I want to welcome Dr. Miller to our show. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine, and how are you? Very, very good. So excited to talk to you. We spoke many years ago. We were talking about class sizes and, you know, the whole issue that that came. And then it was high-stakes testing, which we'll probably talk to in the second part of the show. I think we're going to have so much information that we're not going to be able to talk about everything that we've asked, actually, Dr. Miller to come back in two weeks to follow up on all the things that we may not have been able to to talk about in the time that we have. So he will come back on the show on March 6th if his people uh, say it's okay. We hope they do. And I guess one of the first things I want to ask you is if you can explain to the audience just maybe a little bit of your background on how you become so knowledgeable on school boards and, um, and understand the impact they have that daily goes on for students. Wow, that's it's a big uh, interesting question. question to start out <laughs> with. Uh, first, let me say that I don't have any people. You're talking <laughs> to my people right now, so we get together and make a decision. Okay. And secondly, um, I guess because of my background in terms of going to public schools most of my life, uh, being an educator and Focusing one of my areas of specialization was the sociology of education, and um, I've been involved in education for, God, I don't know how many decades in terms of my life, and in that arena, I've looked at education, and particularly public education, from as many different facets as I possibly could, and the school board is a very, very important facet of public education, not only just public education, probably any kind of, even private schools, if you have a school board. And you mentioned it in part of your intro, this notion of school boards have a tremendous amount of power. And we'll talk about that a little later, the type of power, but they have a tremendous amount of power. And you also mentioned in the intro, Budgets. Large school districts have large budgets. So when you have power and money, you can shape destiny. And that was probably my interest in studying school board is the fact that they can control the future by way of how our kids are educated from pre-K to Ph.D. Well, one one thing, Doctor, um, you, we're kind of talking about, you know, what you said with budgets and the power um, that they do have. I mean, if, if you have your, you know, a large percentage of the population does go to public schools, especially in urban areas. Um, and 
there's the budget. I mean, I'm just going to throw a number out for Detroit is uh, about $350 million. So, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars um, goes funneled into this, you know, these school districts. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of money going to educating children. Um, one thing that, uh, that, that they actually came out a little while ago, I remember there was a lawsuit settled. They said only, um, I believe it was 7 or 10% of Detroit public school 8th graders performed at or above the uh, proficient level in reading and um, for the you know, kind of standardized testing levels. Um, as well as, you know, so there's clearly a lot of money going in for not seeing the, the, the results that we'd like, as well as um, another big thing is the, uh, the kind of theory of the school uh, school to prison pipeline, um, where, you know, a lot of these schools, the decisions that these school districts made in regards to, like, punishing students can actually lead into higher incarceration rates. So I, I just was kind of curious, um, you know, do, do you think that that's something a lot of times people really bring it to, like, a federal or national level? I'm personally of the opinion that it really is at the local level um, to solve these issues. I, w- I was wondering if I could get your perspective on that. Well, I think it's both, both on a national as well as a local level. And when we talk about public schools, you're usually talking about the local level. Yes, many school districts, especially in the urban areas, have tremendous amount of money that they deal with each year. And the whole notion of the school-to-prison pipeline, um, I would say that to a later conversation mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to deal with that now. Dealing with just the question of the budget, you have school districts like, and it's interesting you mentioned Detroit. You know, I'm from Detroit. I was born and raised in Detroit. Oh, I didn't I know, that. know that. No, yeah, I was born and raised there, um, went to school there, and then went off and came back and worked on my doc, earned my doctorate there in Detroit. So that's my hometown. <laughs> um, California, for example, Los Angeles has billion-plus school budget. We're talking mega kinds of money, and it is the school board that makes the decision as to how funds will be allocated to different programs and also the various programs that a, a school district will have. They make that determination and as well as the funding for those various programs. And so that there is part of the power is the budget that they have and how they utilize that budget so that you could have disparities among different, quote, I will call groups or classes where certain schools or certain areas will get more money than a school in a different area so that the school that gets more money has an opportunity to be more uh, prepared to help students gain a quality education versus a school where they get a smaller budget and they can't provide the type of services or the quality of teachers. So that budget and the control of the budget is a primary function of the school board. And it is probably their single most powerful weapon. Now, do you think parents understand um, 
these the fact that these budgets are as big as they are because one thing that I think if you're just also looking at say a small town like Dodge City in Kansas right that's maybe 27,000 people and I think what was it Diego about 54 million dollars is there budget for their schools? Um, I believe, yeah, it was around 50, 55, 60 million. So that's like, that's a lot of money for a community of 27,000. Um, but right now we have actually Ginny from Iowa on line four. I'm sure she must have a question. Ginny, hello? Hello. Hi, would you have a question for Dr. Miller? Um, no, not yet. I'm just listening. Oh, you're just listening. Okay, well, if you do, please chime in. But um, I think, Dr. Miller, that's my question. Do you think parents understand, and I gather that these budgets basically come from property taxes. Is that correct? In most part, yes. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think, do you, I mean, do you think parents real, have a realization, do they understand the amount of money that these school boards have at their, you know, their influence to do with? No. I think the vast majority of parents have virtually no idea or concern. Mm -hmm. I think the concern would be more like our schools are open and our teachers are there and our children have a place that they can go to from 7 or 8 in the morning to 2, 3, 4 in the afternoon. And the cost the budget, I don't think, enter in probably anyone's mind. One thing um, I, I did notice and kind of we were talking about with, uh, it's been really kind of in the news uh, lately, it's kind of a hot button issue, is, is the fact that school, a lot of school budgets are funded in large part by property tax uh, taxes. And obviously, if you live in, a, if your school's in the area with higher value homes where you have a higher property tax, it's going to be funded. So you're kind of already... You know, so children of wealthy people who have expensive homes are already kind of getting another little advantage over maybe kids who perhaps, you know, have low qual, uh, low value homes and are kind of on the poorer side of things. But um, uh, an interesting thing is just how you can have towns and cities uh, and school districts of relatively the same size. Uh, for example, Las Cruces in New Mexico, and for example, at Chattanooga, Tennessee. Roughly the same size, uh, about 120, I think, uh, versus 150 in Chattanooga. But Chattanooga is a very uh, slowly gentrifying town. It's got a lot of tech in there. And um, their budget is almost double, I believe. Uh, Las Cruces is around 250 million, and, and uh, Chattanooga's, respectively, is about 450 million. So you have, you know, uh, I was wondering if your take on this, where you have, you know, kids from two different areas of similar sized towns who, um, you know, the kids in this di in one district are getting twice the amount of funding per student as another uh, uh, student. Do you think that that you know, there's do you, do you think that we need a new system in how we fund schools, or is um, kind of the way we have it? Is it can there be tweaked to uh, make it better? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. In that, property tax has always not always, but for the large part property tax has been used to fund education. Just you do you think we should change that? Yes. Because okay. you always have a disparity. You're going to have those areas like Beverly Hills in California where the property values are 
extremely, extremely high. The taxes could be very high, but they also, because they're so high, they could afford to fund their schools K through 12 on a level that most cities cannot compete with. Then you have a school district and a very, like Detroit, you mentioned very much Detroit. Detroit has decimated over the last 40 years in terms of the prosperity of the city when factories started to close down and move out of Detroit. There went high-paying jobs. There went property values, nosedive. And as a result, Detroit has a very small, I'm going to say small relative tax base to fund, to raise money to pay for the education system. And as a result, the education system is in the pits. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you. the money. Dr. Miller, how do you get people or parents, or even I guess I would say if you own a home and you don't have children, you're still paying for education, right? Yes. How do you find, how do you get parents or people to run for school board? I mean, it seems to me when you talk about the future, the people that are on the school board are going to make decisions on every aspect, whether it's the bus they hire, the after school programs, um, funding for programs like reading or writing, or I mean, it's just a multiple of issues because, you know, I, I've been very involved in PTAs, and I understand it's just like one issue after another, but how do you get people to understand that this is very, very important for them to run for their local school board? That's the question I've been waiting for you to ask, because we've talked about this when you and I were first met. Mm-hmm. School board position for decades, maybe even centuries, being on the school board, running for school board, was an absolutely low-value priority. It would running for dog catcher was more valuable than running for school board. Then that's a true statement. It's been in the last, say, I would say eight to ten years, where. Running for school board position has become a mega, mega important thing. People who, 10 years ago, people running for school board, even in places like Los Angeles, maybe they would raise $10,000, $15,000 or put in their money from their own pocket to run for school board, and you wouldn't get a lot of people running. Today, in Los Angeles, in Northern California, running for school board, people are spending a half a million dollars. Oh, my gosh. People are spending a million dollars or more in Los Angeles to run for school board. Running for school board now has become a very sought-after position. It is always, I'm going to say always, but I'm going to say it anyway. Almost always it has been a position that people would run for as they're starting their, quote, political careers. It was low-level, 
you run for school board, then if you succeed, you stay on school board, then you run for the, another office that's a higher value, political value, and on up and on up and on up. Wow. Now, school board, you run for school board, you get funding, as I said, half a million dollars, million dollars. You get people, big companies, corporations, wealthy individuals, bankrolling candidates for school boards because they see... Is- Yes. Go ahead. Is that well, because there's some marketing value or there's something of money that is, if you get on the school board, you can receive? Or, I mean, what's the power and the money behind being on the school board nowadays? My thoughts are these. When I was on air and with the war report, we talked quite a bit about school boards and the privatization of school boards in that when the big companies or individuals invest their money in a particular candidate and that candidate wins, they in essence own and control that candidate. That candidate and I think the vast majority of the time, is not really an independent player. He or she will vote. He or she will develop policies that are being exposed by the people who help put them in office. And people are realizing, people with money are realizing that if you can control the school board, You can control that budget that you guys mentioned earlier, but you can also control the curriculum. You can control the personnel, and you can control control the personnel, the policies, and the money. Then you can have kids being educated slash socialized in a given philosophy or ideology that is favored by the people who are putting money behind the various candidates that get elected to school board. It's a big picture analysis from my point of view. I um I had a, one thing I, I kind of had a wanted to hear your opinion on um is uh, is that kind of exactly what we're talking about with the power that the school boards have. Um, another kind of big power um, or a big thing that happens I see a lot of times is. They will actually redistrict um, uh, different schools' uh, areas. I, I don't know the proper word, but uh, basically where you know uh, what you know what public school you can, high school you can go to, depending on what you live in. And, and I actually was reading a an article, and they had a map, and you know they talked. It lo- a lot of these looked like gerrymandered districts. I mean, they were they were some some of them were really insane, where they basically would swath out huge like strips of um, you know both uh, of areas that are were homogenous in a, a class sense and as well as a racial sense you know so uh you know they were either entirely white or, or black or hispanic you know hispanic or asian um but and even more so on on class lines and so you would basically have kids who maybe lived you know 20 10 miles from school a and that was a very good school but they were actually zoned uh for school b which is maybe twice as far but that was the poor school or the the black school 
um, or, you know, um, and so one thing I just kind of was wondering your opinion on um, kind of how they zone these schools to, you know, uh, in, in, in a sense, you know, we're kind of uh, in some places back to uh, pre-segregated uh, segregated times um, with some of these school zones. Call it gerrymandering. Yeah. <laughs> simple yeah. as that. Okay? Very simple. <laughs> you draw your school just like you draw your political offices for Senate, for the, not Senate, but for uh, Congress. You draw your district in such a way that the people that you want to go to the schools in this area can do so. The people that you don't want to go to schools in Area A, you zone them out of it. And this is part of segregation. This is part of a strategy that was developed decades ago and where you have cities now that say that if you can get into like a quality school, like in New York, for example, you guys have think spent some time in New York, at least Kathy, you did. Yeah. Um, you will say you have two elite schools. Those schools will be open to any student in the district that, quote, meet the qualification. So hence, we're not segregating the population, but these elite schools will be available to people from all over the district providing, quote, they meet the standards. To me, that's a still a same way of segregating kids along class, race, or religious lines like they're doing for decades slash centuries. You know, it's interesting because when I was, I served, they took the school boards away from New York City and made them community education committees or something like that. And I remember um, I was very involved in, in the education system in New York. I remember I was applying to one very, very good school that was public, um, and the qualifications was that I would be able to give a certain amount of money to the school plus at least 20 to 30 hours of my time to the school. And that, that was kind of the bottom line. If you couldn't do that, it was not it was a well-known secret you wouldn't get in. But I guess my another question to you is that is this something that the school boards actually decide doing this districting and zoning, that is a school board decision? No. As okay. a rule, I would say no. That is, is that a political state? decision made by the people in a given school district, the powers that be. Now, the state may get involved, especially if it's a court-mandated situation where segregation was so pronounced that School districts have to redraw their boundaries in order to be able to allow the kids who were excluded previously for whatever reason, be it race, class, religion, or what have you, could have access to it. But that's usually a district level or city level because those lawsuits that hit the courts are based on a city, not usually a state situation. 
So if a city was doing that, would they then get involved in trying to pick the people who ran for school board so that that school board would justify what they were trying to do? I would say yes to that question, but also you will have people from the communities who want their schools to remain exclusive to one group or another, and they would have just as well uh, as much interest in running for the school board if the school board can continue to gerrymand. Right. And I just kind of I wanted to add in that, you know, these it's not just, you know, about, um, you know, the belief in, in, in desegregation or, or anything like that, because it's not, you know, just a kind of this uh, high context of, you know, well, we should all, you know, have uh, kind of integrated uh, schools. You know, it, there, there's a real human cost to good school, to, uh, a good schooling for children. Um, the success rate and the... Um, percentage of adults who are from a school district who have a college degree, um, it actually exponentially increases the more, um, the better the school district is. So it's not just, oh, well, you know, if you're in a slightly better, um, you know, district, you're gonna, you have slightly better odds. There is a huge, huge um, jump from uh, kids in, for example, I, I, one thing I'm actually, I saw was in um, Phoenix, Arizona, um, the areas that had uh, better school districts, the kids were in some cases 24 times more likely to succeed than school uh, students from poor, poorly low um, and low-funded schools. So there is a huge human component um, to this as well. It's not just you know uh, the theory of you know having better schools, which I think we all would would like, and it, there really is a, a huge need for that. So in kind of summing this, just this segment, this first part of us talking, there's there seems to be even more of an underlying current or underlying power. You have people running for the school board in big urban areas where there's huge money. And if you run, you're backed by, I guess, you, we could say marketing interest or private interest to see John, you know, John Johnson win because he's going to be supportive to things like marketing in the curriculum or buying certain textbooks. Would you say that's kind of summing up what we're talking about, Dr. Miller? I would think the underlying force behind what I said earlier is that if you are a school board member, you control all those things that we talked about, the budget, the curriculum. Mm -hmm. If you are a candidate who's going to run for school board and I am going to put in $100,000, $200,000 in your campaign for you to win, it's, I, I, I want to say it's damn near understood that you're going to propose policies or you're going to vote for policies that serve my interests. And, so, and, and with your with your experience, who do you think these powers that be are? Are they corporations? Are they um, institutions that maybe want to see a typical a certain curriculum? Is it like Mr. Gates? We all know how much Mr. Gates has influenced 
our education system, right? It, are, are these the powers that are really kind of the underlying power of school boards and getting this certain people to run? This is one of them for sure. Eli yeah. Broad in Los Angeles is another one. The former mayor of New York and all of his billions of dollars. And I'm Which one are you talking him. about? I'm waiting for you to name him. <laughs> <laughs> is it, would it be, uh, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm drawing, a, it was, oh, the billionaire. Um, the billionaire, the multi-billionaire. Yeah, oh, Diego, help me out. The, the multi-billionaire of, uh, oh, Bloomberg. There we Bloomberg. go. Bloomberg, there you go, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, when I said, like, a half a million dollars going to a candidate here in California, uh-huh. In Northern California, that was Bloomberg putting in that half a million dollars. From all the way from New York? Yeah. Well, they people who mm. we're talking about, they put money in all across the country. And what is their yeah. goal? He who has the money, he who owns whatever it is, the money has bought. Take a gate. Well, let's go back even further. Back in the mid to late 1990s, most schools in Los Angeles did have computers. The few schools that, and that's when principals had their own budget and they could make a decision how they're going to use their budget. If they want to computer, uh, develop a computer lab, they could. They wanted to expand the library, they could. So that those schools back in the 90s, and I know about this because I ended up, I was a sub for a year in the late 90s in LAUSD, Los Angeles Unified School District. And, I mean, even high schools didn't have computer labs, let alone classrooms. I was at an elementary school that had a computer lab. The principal used her discretionary budget to create a computer lab. She happened to like Apple products. There was a war between Microsoft and Apple to get in to the school districts all across America and the world. It was a, a very, like Apple and Microsoft have had wars that were really, really nasty. So that you have the vested interest of the corporations to be able to sell their products to the schools. You have the philanthropic individuals who have millions and billions of dollars. They, I believe, are putting their money in for ideological control. So you could have both competing interests and all of those, be it the corporate or be it the philanthropic or the people who have money, they have a motivation as to why they're doing it because they, I believe they see that he who controls the school, as I said earlier, who can control the curriculum, who can control the hiring, and et cetera, what are we talking about here? We're talking about being able to shape. The school is, and I've argued this for years, is now the number one socialization agency 
of all generations to come, to presently and to come. Not, not the parents anymore, not religion anymore. It's the school that will socialize our kids, indoctrinate our kids with different ideologies. The schools are tremendously important if you have an ideology that you want to see prevail and have the type of influence on this generation and future generations to come. One one thing that's, I think, really interesting kind of about what you said was um, when you're talking about, you know, ideologies um, and kind of the way of how it's not religion, it's not, you know, any other kind of traditional sense it is in schools. A big argument recently um, is kind of gone on about teaching um, the 1619 Project as well as, I believe, uh, critical race theory in schools. Um, and for those who aren't in project. Yeah, and for those who aren't, know, um, aren't in the know, that those are both... Uh, I would say to some people controversial, um, uh, basically things about kind of looking at uh, examining race as it pertains to uh, kind of the history of America um, and it, in the past how that kind of uh, how that kind of worked. And so there's been a big kind of push. Obviously, um, some people feel that it you know um, is either unpatriotic or is you know too critical of of the U.S. And obviously others feel that it's important. Uh, to reckon with certain aspects of the past in them in America. So there really is, like you said, that big push on both sides of, you know, people, um, there is whoever's in charge of the school board. They're the ones that, uh, that, um, get to kind of, uh, make that decision on, on that. And so if you do have a, a strong opinion, you think, you know, children should be taught a certain thing, you know, the, running for school board is this the biggest way right now for that, uh, for you to kind of, kind of dictate what gets taught to children. Going back with your example, 1619 Project. 1619 was the year that, August 20th, 1619 was the year that a shipload of Africans were dumped off in the colonies. And the beginning of, they weren't slaves per se, they were more like indentured servants that were just dumped off, supposedly. And hence, the 1619 Project is trying to develop a curriculum that will be in the schools that offers a true, accurate, authentic history of the African American in America. That's the 1690 Project. Yes, and there are millions of people who are against that project being taught in the schools. They say it's inappropriate. Those people say it's inappropriate because of their ideology that schools shouldn't deal with issues like that. Now, if I understand your question and your lead-up to presenting your question, the school board Yes, could and most like in most cases, they make the decision about the curriculum. They don't make decisions about the textbook. So if you have people on the board that are owned and controlled by corporations for philanthropic 
individuals or entities, yes, they will most likely vote for the interests of the people who are providing them the money they need to be elected and get reelected. That has been the way for a long, long, long time. <laughs> I understand that Ginny from Iowa has a question. Well, actually, I'd like a summation. I would like to agree with uh, the fact that the wheels that move politics are start at the school board. It, I mean, the just for Des Moines, the denizen equity with the the people who are strategically placed throughout is interesting, um, and they make the decisions. And you say they're making the decisions of like oh, who's hired and everything, huh? Oh yeah, it's gone on for decades. Well, ever since Terry Branstead got back in as governor, I mean, it, um, it, businesses and business, businesses in the community and in the state they run, you know, with what they want. And right now, our whole state is extremely conservative. And the businesses are in there with the school boards and the city councils, and it, it's um, the people they want. They put in strategically. They get right. in. A great deal of privatization. Of course, bunches of money being funneled into the religious entities, parochials. Um just in Des Moines, I see massive segregation of neighborhoods. Well, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Miller, I'm going to go back to you. When we talk about running for school board and the power that they have and the influence they have on business, for instance, the bus uh, company that you hire to take the kids from, say, basketball to a neighboring town, that's a lot of money. So... Running for school board kind of enhance your power, I guess what you're saying, is enhances your power that can lead, like you were saying, to going to city council and moving on up. What would you say to a parent who is just frustrated with the fact that, you know, I remember raising my kids, every time I turned around there was a new math system, you know. Um, <laughs> what yeah. would you tell, Dr. Miller, to parents because some might say, oh, this is just too overwhelming. How could I run for school board because I don't have that kind of connections. I don't have somebody with deep pockets who's going to support me. How do we encourage that common citizen who has a children or, or maybe doesn't and just understands that the future of our country depends on how we educate these kids? What would you say to them to get them interested in running? Because it almost seems now... Like it's almost like running for mayor. I would say what we're talking about now, your show, if parents were to listen to a show like this, become aware. And when I was on the air, I had a paradigm. I, my purpose was to create awareness, understanding, those two would lead to emotional engagement 
those three then would lead to what I hope would be individual or collective positive social action. It, for me, when you're talking about parents or other running for any office, but particularly the school board, they, you, you, and I think this is why I wanted to come on your show once you invited me, was that you're trying to make people not only aware of the issues, but you're trying to make people aware of how to get involved. Right. That's the awareness thing. That's what I'm really very appreciative about your show. And with Weird. that getting people awareness, then you, you set the stage for them then to take that next level of coming to an understanding. I personally then, really... Sorry. And then the third level... With those two, that emotional engagement, that's where and that's when you're going to get people who would be interested in running for a school board. And especially if they have children or grandchildren, and especially if they can become aware of the powers to be that put the people on the school boards who make the decisions that will impact their children, their grandchildren, life, and the future of their grandchildren or great-grandchildren. They see their investment of them getting involved in trying to make sure that you got a school board that will push for equitable education, a good education, and for protection of their own children. That's one my thing, answer uh, to your question. Yeah. One thing I think, like, kind of what you were talking about, um, is politics, I think, for the first time in a, in a in long time, if not ever, has really kind of... Um, captured people's interest and, and, and we have now um, kind of a a interest in in running for politics but as well as being kind of well pretty well politically informed um, and I think that's fantastic the one issue I've noticed is that it tends to be um, on a like a government you know state federal or even you know maybe county regional level um, and, and I think that's really one goal we have with Canada's platform, with kind of the Know Your Vote initiative, is we really want it, people to get involved with school boards because it is definitely, in my opinion, a approachable thing. It's not, you know, when you run for school board, you don't have to have an opinion on, you know, a lot of uh, like these heavily debated social issues. It's really, for the most part... Um, it's it's a very approachable way to kind of get involved, and I really hope that people and and we can maybe help change that where people look at their school boards and look at you know um, and, and utilize the same interest they have in politics on the social side, um, social value side, with the, the kind of school boards and the children and, and kind of what um, what happens to that. I mean, one kind of thing I want to just touch base on before we have to end is. Uh, something that's happening right now where school boards are deciding if, if, if students go into class 
um, to learn or if they're still doing remote. Some some school boards uh, have started to, to go back in class. Um, some haven't. And people have a lot of issues, a lot of opinions on that. And I really would like for people to, um, to get more involved in that. But I, I would like uh, your opinion, Dr. Miller, if you don't mind giving it on kind of your take on this COVID, uh, you know, school from home situation. And uh... I'm smiling here because <laughs> I was going to suggest to the two of you that that be one of the issues we talk about my second time around. All right, that's okay. that's definitely yeah. that I'm, that I'm that's really so deep. emotionally engaged in that issue. I've got okay, some that's... very strong opinions. Great, well, I think we... that's a great follow up. And, and and so let's leave pandemic to the the next show we have. Well, let me ask you a question. We've talked about urban communities. You know, I've. Uh, came from New York City and moved back to Arizona and spent some time, we, we laughed about it in Minot and in um, Douglas, Arizona. What would you say to the person com- living in a town of, say, 25,000 and under? Um, why should they get involved? I mean, it would seem to me that there's maybe not that much of the political power control of private interest, maybe in a small town, but they have big budgets also. What would you say to the parent listening who lives in a small town? Yes, Kathy, you're going to have to really delineate more because in a small town of 25 and 99%, 100% of are white, rural, resident, they're going to have a set of issues that is peculiar to that population. Right. But if you're all in another town where you have 5, 10, 15, 20, and most of that town is, say, a southern rural town that may be black or Hispanic, you're going to have different issues there. If we're talking about, in my view, a homogeneous population, you may then have issues around religion because maybe religion is a very, very powerful institution in that small community. Right, right. And they want to, but, they don't want, go ahead. Well, I guess my question is then, if you're a parent in a small town, and say your community is very religious, and they're pushing religion in the curriculum, is it possible for that parent who has a different view to be able to be successful if they can get people to vote? Because, you know, let's, let, that's the other question. When you go to vote, how many people know who's running for school board? Very few, right? Mostly, I would think. Um, how does that parent who says, why should I do it? I'm just going to be an uphill battle. You know, I'm in a religious community, and but I have, I'm very passionate about where I want my child and what I want them to learn. And maybe there's other parents that he knows that feel the same way. Can that parent run and be successful? I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> I tell you, I know that was a very quick, snappy answer. But going back to what we talked about earlier, education now is highly politicized. Even in those communities, small communities, Communities that are homogenetic in makeup is politicized. If the issue is not religion, 
that you're not teaching the proper education to our kids because you're not emphasizing the Bible. That may be an issue. And if you're that lone wolf who doesn't want your kids to be religiously indoctrinated, you're not going to, in my view, and given the makeup of the town, I don't think you have a snowball's chance in hell. What if you got a slate? What if you, as a parent, decided, okay, there's three uh, positions opening up for school board. I'm going to find two other people who are like-minded like me, and we're going to run. I think, and maybe this is where we see candidates' platform being so helpful, is that we can give you that platform to get your message out without having to raise a lot of money, without having to go to the people with deep pockets or your religious leaders and be able to get the word out that this is what you're doing and you're, you know, there's just three of you that believe this and if you believe the same way that we need to get religion out, let's say use that as an example, of our curriculum, you need to vote for us in. You think they have a, a chance then? No. Kathy, what you guys are doing is why I was very excited about being invited to come on your show, creating the platform, helping individuals to understand the electoral process and being able to hopefully help in that regard is incredible. But there's limits to it. If, right. Again, look at, and I'm going to lay it out, look at the Republican Party. Look at what happened to them now, the, the fracturing of the party. And people who are Trumpites, very conservative, versus even the legislature in the Senate who are trying to, quote, take back their party from Trump. They have the recognition, but when they go back home, if they from an area that... The people are so conservative, so radical in the sense that they are the Trump supporters and share whatever Trump's vision was, which I never understood. Then your lone wolf guy or a woman, I, in my view, and maybe a cynical view, they don't stand, a, as I said earlier, a snowball's chance in hell. Within the system that exists now. Within the system exists now, and I think foreseeable future. Unless that person can go out and convert or change people's perception, their values on a large scale, it's not going to happen. Well, it's interesting because you did this kind of thing where didn't you go to Detroit? to try to help a community change the school board? We were talking about that in a conversation yes, we I had. Yes, I did. And the right? same thing in uh, Buffalo, New York. I think that would be really interesting to touch on base when you come back, is how you were able to do that and what it took to do that. And, and again, I think that I get very excited in what you're saying because I see the candidates' platform as a way to help that lone wolf or a couple of lone wolves who really are passionate and want to get involved as a way to do it because we have to admit that today in our society, getting involved in politics is not easy. 
to you know, actually run, it, you know? There's a bigger picture that you're, you're dealing with. We're talking about human behavior. We're talking about attitudes. Attitudes can be extremely hard to change. Mm-hmm. As a social psychologist, this is one of my primary areas of study, this social behavior. That's what I do. I study social and behavioral science. I'm a social and behavioral scientist. And change is very hard. But it can be on done. On an individual level as well as on a group level. Not impossible, but very hard. Well, I um, think I'm going to have to come in here and uh, unfortunately do the sad dishonor, <laughs> the sad of um, cutting us off. We are running close to our time, but um, this is the good news is this is the first half of our two-part with uh, Dr. Miller um, on our next show, which will be in two weeks, uh, March 6th. Same time, we will be talking, uh, going in more in depth, we'll be talking about uh, the COVID, kind of the lockdown, staying in schools versus going in person. Um, I would like to maybe we can bring up a little bit more about um, kind of the we talked earlier about the school to prison pipeline. I think that'd be a really interesting thing um, to talk about, um, as well as we're going to be continuing talking about school districts and school boards. Um, I wanted to thank everyone. Thank you, Dr. Miller, for coming out. Uh, it's been a fascinating show, and I've I've learned a lot, and um, I hope our our viewers have as well on just kind of the the intricacies that go into this. Um, I want to wish everyone a great night. I hope everyone has a fantastic rest of their day. We will uh, be here same time in two weeks. Um, everyone have a great night, and we will talk to you soon. Good night. Yes, and don't forget, Canada's platform is going to be a way for the lone wolf to get out there and be able to run. <laughs> so tune back in, and we'll talk about that, and we'll do, you know dive deep into the stuff that school boards do. They do a lot. They have a lot of control and a lot of power. Our, so. our website is CandidatesPlatform.com. You can find us at Twitter at CandidatePlat, as well as on Facebook at Candidates Platform and LinkedIn as Candidates Platform as well. Everyone have a great night. And I thank you for inviting me on your show. Uh, we're happy to have you, and uh, I'm excited for two weeks <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be really prepared with a lot of questions for you, and I hope the audience is too. <laughs>